Last week we began our dive into Luke, and we started with verses 1 through 25. And we saw that the reason Luke was writing this gospel in the first place, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. And he's writing so that he might have certainty of the things he had been taught. Luke wanted both him and us to have a security of faith, to read the the Bible and believe. He wanted us to believe like the early disciples of Christ believed. I think of how many wounds uh, poor Paul, the Apostle Paul, shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments. And Luke was his physician. And I can almost imagine him. Another one, Paul. Really? More beatings. Yes. You know, I, they, they stoned me this time. Oh, okay. All right. And Luke tending these wounds and thinking, what is it about this man, Jesus, that keeps sending Paul back? What, what kind of faith causes men and women to look at the whip, to see imprisonment and mouths of lions and say, that's worth dying for. My king is worth dying for. That's the certainty Luke wants us to have. Then we talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth who called to mind our first parents of the faith, Abraham and Sarah. And we saw how Zechariah initially received God's word, but he doubted it. Then in faith, he goes to his wife Sarah and she conceives just as the angel said she would. It's interesting to note that Luke is the only gospel writer who actually recounts the foretelling and birth of John the Baptist. I mentioned this last week, but Luke is using John's birth to connect us to something that came before. He's using it as a bridge. And he's going to use Jesus' birth then as the next connector, as the culmination of everything that was promised. All those past things are now finding their culmination, their realization in Jesus Christ. Careful readers will also see a pattern in Luke's gospel. There's the announcement of John, then the announcement of Jesus. The birth of John, then the birth of Jesus. And then a link between the two with Mary and Elizabeth, who are related, both pregnant, both children unexpected, and they come together. One commentator puts it this way, both children are announced in advance by Gabriel, both births are miraculous, And in both cases, the angel tells what the name should be. Even more important than the similarities are the contrasts. John was born to an aged woman. Jesus was born to a young virgin. John was given a name which means God is gracious. Jesus is given a name which means Savior. John comes to prepare the way for the Lord. Jesus is the Lord who will reign forever. So you see the patterns. Luke is very carefully laying this out. He wants us to contrast different things. And today he's going to have us contrast Zachariah's response to Mary's response as well. Well, what about the location? What is, what's the location of these events? This time we're in Galilee. We're not in Judea. This is Nazareth, not Jerusalem. And it's the home of little Mary that the angel comes, not to the temple. It's the land of Zebulun. If you read in Isaiah 9, verse 1, it says this, In the former time he brought contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond 
Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's to the people here dwelling in darkness who are about to see a great light. The light of the world is now coming to Nazareth. Nazareth was about 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And it was, a, it was a rest stop between Tyre and Sidon. And when we think about Nazareth, usually we think it's this tiny little hole-in-the-wall place. But it actually wasn't, that's actually not the case. It was about 15,000 in population. And all manner of people would pass through and they'd stop there. Roman soldiers, Greek merchants, priests, everybody would come through there. And as tends to be the case, so would troublemakers. So would robbers, so would thieves, so would people looking to make a quick buck. And so Nazareth was sort of a hotbed of corruption, if you will. This is why Nathaniel, later on when he sees Jesus, he says, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Probably a common saying. People would have known that Nazareth was not a place that was pumping out, you know, prophets and priests and kings. It was a wicked place. So that's where we are. You know, last week we talked about how we had a wicked king and a debased priesthood and a temple that was unfinished. And today we have a corrupt city and a little virgin named Mary. Our characters are Joseph and Mary. Those are the names mentioned. Joseph is named, nothing else really being added except he's of the house of David. And he's betrothed to Mary, meaning he was her fiance, as good as married. They were, they were considered married in that day. If we go to Matthew, we learn that he's a righteous man, also a carpenter. Then we have Mary, sweet little Mary, pops up out of the blue. No no clue who she is. And sadly, she has been ruined in many ways. The, The Catholic Church has ruined sweet Mary. They've made her sinless. They they even say that uh, she pops up in visions to people. She's a perpetual virgin to the point that Jesus teleported. Out of her womb, they pray to Mary. She is co-redemptrix with Christ. Her statues cry. They bleed. They've ruined her. They've abused her. And because they have made this whole Marian dogma, this whole thing with Mary, we've taken her and we've tossed her out completely. And that's another form of error in itself. And so we want to seek to correct that. Mary is blessed. We want to put her back in the proverbial bathwater of history. We don't want to throw her out. So that's our place. Those are our characters. And now we turn to the story itself. As far as the outline goes, we have Gabriel's approach, Gabriel's announcement, and Gabriel's answer. And in each of those three points, Mary responds. Mary responds. Follow along as we read Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, And tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will never be an end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Lord, these are mysterious, wonderful things. Too wonderful for us to grasp. And yet we ask that you would impress them upon our hearts today, that you would give us some sort of light here, that we might come away with praise on our lips. Holy Spirit, I ask that it would be so in the name of Christ. Amen. This is a beautiful passage of scripture, starting in verse 28. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. You. We should marvel at that. This wonderful thing that took place in history. In the darkest days, the darkest towns, the darkest moments in history, God has a plan and a remnant and a people. Nothing can thwart what he has purposed from eternity past. And the angelic messenger comes, again, not to Jerusalem, not to a high priest, but to a young little girl, a virgin, in a small, corrupt town. God works in unlikely places with unlikely people. That's his MO throughout all of time. The Bible is filled with account after account of that happening in his word. How many of you here today are trophies of his grace. How many of you are monuments to his mercy? Unlikely little people as we are in Panama City, this little town. And yet God has come to us. What we see as small and despised, God sees as prime real estate. And so Gabriel came with the words of peace to Zechariah, do not be afraid. And the same is true here to Mary. Greetings, O favored one. The word here favored is grace. Oh, graced one, one endued with grace. We can read those words and we can think they refer to Mary's high calling as the mother of our Lord. But I think it refers to her character. She is a gracious soul, a sweet, righteous believer, someone who loves the Lord. Consider the town where she lived, this this corrupt Nazareth. A sinister background, sinister community, and here we have a virgin. In the midst of impurity, we find a true believer who has kept herself pure. Another thing which is often neglected is the fact that Mary herself was almost certainly of the line of David as well. She was related to Elizabeth, we know that, who was priestly descent. But there's no reason to assume that Mary's parents weren't One of David's line and one of Aaron's line. 
And the reason I say that is because in Romans 1.3, Paul writes concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. So it's not just that Jesus is descended from David through Joseph's adoption, that's true, but also by the blood of Mary. This little pure girl, this sweet little girl, has David's kingly blood coursing through her veins. As I said earlier, Mary responds three times. The angel, three different things, Mary responds three different times. Here it's not with words, but with her emotions. Now, how do we know Mary's emotions? How do we know what she's feeling? She told Luke, of course. She treasured these things up in her heart. And so she would have relayed this to Luke. Verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now we have to contrast Mary and Zechariah. Zechariah was gripped with fear. He's there in the, the holy place and here comes the angel and he is startled, gripped with fear. He's terrified. But we read Mary's response is really one of surprise. She's, she's caught off by the message. It's not even so much the angel, but the message of the angel. The content is what startles her. You can imagine her again. She sits down. She's talking with Luke. Luke, he called me highly favored. A, a messenger of the Lord, an angel, called me, little Mary of Nazareth, highly favored. She was not conscious of the beauty of her Character. You see, humble people rarely are aware of the fact that they are humble and beautiful and wonderful to be around. It's part of being humble. Sinful Mary, like the rest of us. This was a revelation that God had looked upon her, that he had chosen her for something tremendous. Why? Why her? Why would an angel come to Mary? And, and the, the tremendous reason is for the same reason he, God's word comes to any of us. Grace. It's God's grace because of grace. Not the best and the brightest, but those with faith. Not the loudest, the proudest, the humble of heart. Your qualification for being in this room today is that you woke up and you thought, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And Jesus said, bingo, come on in. Come on in. Because I'm a savior for sinners. I did not come to save the righteous. The righteous don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need healing. So God uses weak things to shame the strong. These responses from Mary are important. They show us something about her character, something about her humility. They give us something to model, to follow after. We're not to respond to God's call when it comes as Zachariah did, but rather as Mary did. Not with terror, but with humble astonishment. Not with doubt, but with amazement. Not with reluctance at the call, but with humble submission to it. So Mary hears these words. She's astonished that God would look upon her with favor. And so too are we who carry the Lord in our hearts. Who are we that he should look upon us? With grace. Have you discovered in your life that God's grace is not always welcomed? Sometimes His mercies and His grace are hard 
to comprehend. Sometimes they always come as gifts, but sometimes you are reluctant to receive them. Graces can be perplexing to us. They can frighten us. They can startle us. When God calls us, it can terrify us. As one pastor put it, the grace of healing may have the face of a hypodermic needle or a surgeon's blade. The grace of patience may have the face of pain. The grace of humility may have the face of defeat. And so God's grace comes as gift, but we don't always initially receive it with joy. How many times have you looked back and thought, ah, that's what God was doing. (laughs) Years down the road, that's, oh, that's what he was doing. When I was in it, I was angry. I was upset. I did not receive it. But now I look back. Oh, what a grace that God kept me away from those people or kept me out of that relationship or kept me from getting that job or moving somewhere. Now comes the angel's announcement. This is verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Rome had absolutely blasted the ancient world into submission during this time. It had put its boot on the neck of God's people. But God had something to say about it. In a world of wicked rulers, great David's greater son was coming to put all things to right. You will conceive, the angel says, in finality. You will bear a son. There's glory here. There's glory. Centuries of beauty and interpretation find meaning in that simple announcement. You will bear a son. All the Old Testament finds its meaning in that you will bear a son, Mary. And his name shall be Jesus. It's wonderful. It's another ancient name. Another ancient name, as we looked at last week, it connects us to God's dealings with his people in the past. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew, Joshua. Now, when the angel said, your your son's name will be Jesus, Joshua, what did Mary have going through her mind? She probably grew up with a thousand boys named Joshua. My sweet wife is named Ashley. She knows lots of Ashleys. I know Joshua, she would have thought. Her mind would have gone back to to the successor of Moses. I'm sure many of you know Joshua's as well. But Joshua in the Old Testament was a little boy, at one time born into slavery in Egypt. And his parents initially named him Hoshea, which means salvation. Again, a great name given to a child as a gasp of hope. In slavery, to name your son salvation with chains on your wrists. And as he grew up, he became Moses' right-hand man, and Moses gives him a different name. Yehoshia, Yehoshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation. Now Gabriel appears, and he comes to Joseph, and he He gives the meaning of his son's name. He says, you will call him Jesus, Yeshua. It's a shortened version of Yehoshua. 
because he will save his people from their sins. Do you see, after centuries of Joshua's, <laughs> centuries of that name, the one who would bear it perfectly had come. The one who would be God's salvation in real time had arrived. Then we're told that this perfect Yeshua, this perfect Joshua, verse 32, would be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I can't help but read that and think that the angel was just praising when he said it. How could you not smile as, the, as Gabriel who, who dwells in the presence of God and he, now he gets to announce God's plan of redemption? Oh, it's just wonderful. He says he will be great, meaning there is inherent greatness about him. During Jesus' life, he was brought very low. He was tried, he was condemned, left bloody, whipped, pierced. Who would have looked upon him and thought, here's a great man? If we could have seen him upon the cross, we would have considered him smitten and afflicted and despised by God. We would not have seen him as great. Surely all who hang upon a tree, the scripture says, is cursed. Not great. He was called an evildoer. He was numbered with the transgressors. Did anyone see him as great as they hammered the nails in his hands or his feet? What about as he carried his cross through the streets with a fake crown of thorns and blood pouring down his face? Was that is that what greatness looks like? Spear pierced his side. I wonder if Mary recalled the angel's words in her head as she saw her, body, her, her baby boy breathe his last as they took his body down, as they buried him. The angel told me he would be great. The angel said he would be the son of the Most High. He's, he's dead. The angel said he would be great. But even in his death, we look back and was there anything greater that ever took place? in all of human history than the atonement of Christ. And the face that was despised and was spat upon is the face of the one who sits enthroned upon David's throne forever and ever. Amen. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, in his sinless perfection, the only one who was ever perfectly sinless, he is great. In his Passive and active obedience, he is great. In his perfect wisdom and his character and his righteousness, he alone stands out like a beacon blazing across time and space as the only great one. And when he dies, he conquers. The great chain breaker comes to free men and women from bondage to sin. The master carpenter, just like his father, Joseph rebuilds the foundations of broken Israel. He tears down the temple in three days. He restores it. He is the priest. He offers himself sacrifice once for all. 
He is the prophet, the divine logos and word of God. He is the living word of God. He is the king. He subdues his enemies and our enemies and conquers sin and death once and for all for us on the cross. Yes, the one who was crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions, is salvation. God's salvation in the flesh. He is great. Our Lord Jesus, we're told, has been appointed heir of all things. He upholds the universe with the word of his power. Friends, he is 10 billion times greater than the greatest thing you could ever possibly imagine on this earth or love or care about. He beats it. If you put all the greatest thinkers of all time, of all history in one room, they would shut their mouths and listen to Jesus. We could spend the rest of the day speaking of his greatness. But words fail. Words fail. And I think as remarkable as it is, Gabriel, he can't even come up with the words. And so he says he will be great. Do you think Gabriel could, go, could wax poetic about how great God is? Incredible. Beloved, is he great in your heart today? Does he occupy the throne of your heart? Does he, does he occupy your thoughts? Do you long to see him? Do you long to be like him, to follow him? His greatness is unparalleled. It's unmatched. There is no kinder or magnificent Joshua. No kinder Savior than our Jesus. Mary, the Lord is with you. Emmanuel, God is with us. Your salvation is in your womb. Friends, our salvation dwells with us today. Don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid, church of God. Next, we're told he will be called son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Gabriel's giving a description of what will distinguish Jesus from every other king, every other ruler that's ever come before and will ever come after. He's great, he's king of kings, and he's eternal. In Luke 8, 28, there's a demon. and He cries out to Jesus. He says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? You see, even the powers of darkness, even the demons recognize Jesus' sonship is not like our sonship. We are sons and daughters of God, but when Jesus is called Son of the Most High, it means He is distinctly unique. All the powers, principalities, all the, all the rulers, all, all these things answer to Him. He has been given the name that is above every name. We are children of God, but Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, begotten, not made, from all eternity past. As king, he fulfilled all the prophecies that said a son of David would rule over Israel as well. Not only over Israel, but over all things, forever and ever. His kingdom and his kingship stretches ever onward, ever forward. An eternal kingdom has no end. This promise means Jesus right now ruling and reigning December 17th over his people. Right now. 
David's kingdom, Solomon's rule, we read that, we marvel at it. Spectacular. And yet Christ's kingdom blows them out of the water. There are, as we speak today, Christians worshiping all over the globe. God's little remnant in every little town in in the darkest, deepest jungle. In these corrupt cities and nations and people, God has a little remnant who are worshiping right now. Despite their government saying, you better not, they say, we're doing it. We're doing it. Because he's the king, you see? He's the king. His gospel goes forth. You can't stop it. For 2,000 years, since the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God had been preparing for this moment. Promise after promise, pointing to this day when great David's greater son would come. The one wiser than Solomon. The one whose kingdom and throne has no end. The prophecy read, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And then we read at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, Jesus shines his signal and he says, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The question for us then is not whether God broke into the universe as king. He did. That's a fact, whether people acknowledge it or not. He is their king. The question is, what kind of king is he? What difference would his kingship make in your life, in my life, if we acknowledged him as king, if we, if we saw him as king? Well, he's holy, the angel says. He's holy, which means he's pure. It means he's good. It means he has no defi- def- deficiencies, no defects. He is the spotless lamb of God. And so it means if he's my king, I have a living hope because my king died for me. And because he was righteous and I'm unrighteous and he gave me all of that righteousness, now I am righteous before God. And that's good news. To have Christ as my king, as your king, means to be protected with infinite power. No one. Nothing can ever ultimately separate us from the love of God or destroy us. Therefore, the king of the universe is given the name Savior. As I mentioned earlier, not Savior of the righteous, not Savior of the really smart people, not Savior of super Christians, Savior of sinners. If you're a sinner today, that's good news. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This great king of Israel is king of the universe. He'll never be replaced. There's no vote. There's no other candidates. There's no successors to his throne. It's him forever. Therefore, the salvation he brings and the protection he offers is eternal. Now, Mary pauses to catch her breath a little bit. It's a lot to take in. And she issues a challenge, but it's a challenge of faith. It's not, how shall I know this, as Zachariah said, but rather, how will this be? 
Literally translated, since I do not know a man. How will this be since I do not know a man? She didn't challenge the fact of the thing. She was asking about the method of the thing. She, like Zechariah, knew that the natural way things worked was not this way. But what Gabriel spoke was extraordinary things. It's humility. It's a childlike wonder at the things of God. It's taking God at his word and saying, Lord, I want to see. I don't know how it works, but I want to see it work, and I'm excited for it. Now we come to the final point. Gabriel's answer, verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Of God. We have to confess there's mystery here. There's mystery here. And we always need to be content to let God be God and we remain silent where the text doesn't speak further. And so we read the mystery, we wonder at the mystery, we receive what, what God has told us. And there are still essential truths here we need to take note of. When it comes to Christ's incarnation, the God man. Christ taking on human flesh. We have two problems. And the two problems are biological and moral. When we come to the biological problem, we briefly say something about that tremendous word. The angel Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow. Now, what does that mean? The Greek used elsewhere speaks of clouds of darkness. As darkness enveloping something, wrapping something up. And so the angel says what he's permitted to say, perhaps what even little he understands about the biological dilemma. How is that going to work, Gabriel, Mary says? Well, he says the Holy Spirit will envelop you, it will overshadow you, you will become pregnant. That's how it's going to work. Now my philosophy of who God is finds contentment in that answer, and my response is to marvel at it. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you what does that mean it's a wonder it's a mystery it's beautiful but the other problem is there and that's the moral one how can a child be born of a woman of a sinful woman and yet escape the corruption of Adam's sin that's the moral problem now obviously again our Catholic friends they they handle that issue and they say well that's simple Mary was sinless herself She had to have been sinless, and that's how Jesus did not have original sin passed on. But we read very clearly in Scripture, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus came in the first place. It's clear from this text and others that Mary is in need of her son's salvation just as we are in need of his salvation. So the problem of Adam's sin remains. But I think Gabriel answers it both here. He's answering both the biological and the moral problem. Listen again. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's biological. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. That's the moral solution. And so he's saying this miraculous birth will be accomplished by God, wrapping you enveloping you, overshadowing you, and producing in your womb the God-man. 
But also by that same divine act, by that same power, the Holy Spirit working, the child begotten will be guarded from contamination from Mary's sin nature. He will be holy from birth, set apart. To use a Latin phrase, he is non posse peccari, meaning not able to sin. Jesus is not able to sin. He is completely different, completely set apart. He is tempted in every way, yet without sin. And that is too wonderful for words. We can't even comprehend it. To go your whole life. Can you imagine going a single day without sinning? And Jesus went 33 years without it. It's a mystery. It's glorious. And as we've said before, theology leads us to doxology. Mystery leads to awe. Our response is one of praise. Just as Zechariah was given proof, so too is Mary given proof. Verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. That's news to her. Elizabeth was hiding out. Nobody knew about that. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. Nothing will be impossible with God. You see, Mary, God is not limited to ordinary and natural things. He can do and does as he pleases. The extraordinary thing is done every single day. The fact that you are a believer is a miraculous thing he has done in your heart. God's not imprisoned By nature, when you put him into a box, when you say, well, God can't do this, God can't do that, you are looking at a God with your own face. God can do all things within his character. So he says, go, Mary. Find Elizabeth. Let that baby bump in her old age be a comfort and encouragement to you. Then he summarizes the whole thing. He brings us back to Sarah, back to Abraham. Back in Genesis 18, Sarah receives the news. Sarah, you're going to have a son. And Sarah laughs. Sarah laughs. But in 1813, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall I indeed bear a child? Now that I am old, she says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Gabriel looks at Mary and says, do you remember your Sunday school lessons? Do you remember how Sarah laughed? Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. The testimony of the saints, Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And so we read of impossible things made possible by God. The timeless has entered history. The God-man is going to be born. We conclude with Mary's beautiful response. Verse 38. The angel has said, Behold, many times. Behold, behold, behold. And Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Could you say those words today? Let God do with me as he pleases. Can you pray, I will entrust myself to you wholly, truly? Do you trust 
that God loves you? Do you trust that he is good? Do you trust yourself as his servant? Use me as you see fit. You'll only ever pray that if you trust that the Lord is good, if you've tasted and seen that Jesus is your salvation. Zechariah is rebuked for unbelief. Mary's blessed for her humble submission. Well, I have a word from the Lord for all you today. This great, holy, eternal King of Kings has commissioned me to publicly announce amnesty for all of you here, for all of those who have rejected his kingship up to this point, there is peace offered. There is a olive branch. He's gracious. He's merciful. And I come bearing good news. Do not fear. The Lord has looked upon you today with favor. Before Jesus sat down on that forever throne, he died and he made payment for you. That you might be called the son and daughter of God. And now this very day, whoever would believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. If you would lay down your weapons of rebellion and submit to his sovereign rule. In the name of the almighty and matchless Jesus, I urge you today to come. May we respond as Mary did. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray.